Uh, I have three goals this morning other than survival. You may notice I'm battling a little cold. I know you're not supposed to say that, but I'm not professional. Uh, number one, I want to give one tip for Bible interpretation. I want to give one tip for Bible interpretation. Uh, number two, I want to share what I have in common with two of the disciples, what I have in common with two of the disciples. And number three, I want to provide three reasons why Jesus doesn't call Uber Eats when he runs out of food. Um, so those are my goals for uh, this morning. Number one, I want to give one tip for Bible interpretation. Here it is. You can write it down. It's very important. Tip number one, context is key. When it comes to studying the Bible or reading the Bible or interacting with the Bible, context is key. It's all too easy sometimes for us to pluck a verse or a passage out of context, but if we're going to interpret uh, Scripture well, it's important for us to know uh, a passage and where it lands and what comes before it and what comes after it. I want you to imagine for a moment that you walk into a local coffee shop and you see me in the corner, but you don't know me. We've never met before. We have no relationship. And you get your coffee and you sit down next to me. I'm sitting with a friend and I, uh, I'm speaking to a friend and you overhear me say these words, I could just kill Jack. You don't know me. We have no relationship. I'm just sitting at the table. I'm drinking a black coffee, no cream, no sugar. It's the only way to drink it. Talking to a friend, and you hear those words come out of my mouth, and you're in a bit of a predicament. I just said I could just kill Jack. You might be asking yourself, well, I wonder who Jack is. There are a couple of options. There's a couple of meanings that uh, that I could have behind my words. I could really uh, want to kill Jack. Uh, maybe Jack is someone I know, but I don't see eye to eye with. I don't like Jack. I hate Jack. I think the planet would be well served if Jack was no longer on it. So you hear me say those words, and you're going, he's going to take out Jack. He's going to take out Jack. You don't know if you should call someone. You don't know if you should share it with a barista. You don't know what to do. That's a possibility. I could be a murderer who's out to take out Jack. Or I could be a writer. I could be writing a novel. And Jack is the main character. And Jack, unfortunately, had to go off to war. He left his love behind. And she fell in love with the farm boy. Now I don't know what to do with Jack. A couple back home was just meant to be. They really love one another. I feel badly for Jack but he's off to war. And so what am I going to do with him? I'm going to kill off Jack in my novel. Jack, he could be my neighbor. He's not. I don't have a neighbor, Jack. But maybe Jack likes to throw parties late on Saturday night. Jack doesn't care that I'm a pastor and Saturday night is leading into my one work day a week. I thought about taking this morning off. Jack doesn't care. He throws parties. They're loud parties, and I'm up all night long. I'm not fresh when I come up here for my 35 minutes of work a week, and I'm tired of Jack, I'm tired of him, and so I'm thinking about taking matters into my own hands, or, or you may not know, 
Uh, but I have a Jack Russell Terrier named Jack. Jack is 11 years old. I've been trying to get rid of Jack for about 11 years. And Jack got into the trash again, and I could just kill Jack. When it comes to a conversation, context is key. And when you read your Bible, context is key. Understanding what is happening before a passage and what is happening after a passage is essential in understanding the passage. And today's passage is uh, no different. John chapter 6, the feeding of the 5,000 men, uh, comes right after John chapter 5, when Jesus was speaking uh, to a group of Jewish uh, leaders, and he uh, was condemning them or stepping on their toes because they followed Moses, but they wouldn't follow Jesus. John chapter 5, verse 45 reads, Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? And so Jesus is looking at a spiritual group of people, and he is telling them, essentially, you trusted in Moses, but you will not uh, trust in me. It's not like Moses was an insignificant player in God's story. Uh, if you're familiar with God's story, then you likely have heard at least bits and pieces or parts of Moses' story. Uh, Moses was used by God in a significant way. Uh, Moses was used by God to lead God's people out of slavery. Uh, Moses was used by God to go up to the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments. Moses was used by God in part to provide manna for the people as they wandered through uh, the wilderness when they had nothing to eat. Moses was not an insignificant player in God's story. And in some ways, it's not hard to imagine or believe that people might be tempted to follow a man, a spiritual man, a godly man. I mean, how easy is it for us to do the same? Maybe it's someone who lived hundreds of years ago. Maybe it's a theologian, a great reformer, uh, someone who's near and dear to our hearts. We've read all of his writings. We quote him. We love him. We have a tattoo of him on our arm. We won't show anyone, but we do. Like, we appreciate his work and his life. There's nothing wrong with uh, reading theologians from yesteryear. There's nothing wrong with uh, reading teachers from today, uh, people that God uses in significant ways. Uh, but we are apt oftentimes to follow a man. And Jesus, when speaking to the people, criticizes them because uh, they love Moses. They believe in Moses, but they won't realize that Moses was actually writing about Jesus. And so when we read this story in John chapter 6 and we understand the context of it, we understand that in this story, uh, Jesus is painting a picture that he is greater uh, than Moses. He is greater than any teacher who has gone before him. It reminds me in many ways of 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, uh, when, the, when the church is uh, challenged 
for following men instead of following Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 11 through 13 read, For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Even Paul is writing to the church at Corinth and saying, don't, don't follow a man. Follow Jesus. Jesus is speaking to the people and saying, don't follow Moses. Follow me. And then all over this passage in John chapter 6, there is an allusion to the work of Moses in comparison to the work of Jesus. John chapter 6, verse 31 reads, Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. So John chapter 6, it's the time of Passover. You might think back to the time of Passover when Pharaoh finally had enough and let God's people go. A great crowd is following Jesus. You may remember that a great crowd followed Moses through the wilderness. Jesus is going to provide food for the hungry people. God used Moses to feed the people manna from heaven. You can see the comparisons as we read this story. When studying the Bible, context is key. It's important to understand what comes before a passage and what comes after passage if we're to understand the true meaning of a passage. So one tip for Bible interpretation, context is key. Say context is key. I did that so I could stop talking for a second. All right, I said I wanted to share with you one tip for Bible interpretation. It is context is key. I said I wanted to share what I have in common with two disciples. Those disciples are Philip and Andrew. Their story is told in John chapter 6, uh, beginning in verse 5. It says, lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to him, for he himself knew what he was going to do. So why did Jesus ask this question of Philip? Jesus asked this question of Philip uh, to test Philip. And he wanted to test Philip to see how Philip would respond. Jesus knew what he was going to do. Jesus knew how he would respond uh, to the hungry crowd. But Jesus wants to see how Philip is going uh, to respond. Jesus wanted his disciples to fully understand who he was he could have solved the problem without involving his disciples. He could have kept the issue close to his vest. He didn't have to invite Philip or Andrew into what he was about to do, and yet he did. And so this miracle that Jesus is going to perform is not just uh, for hungry people, uh, but it is for his followers. It's for his disciples. It is for those who underestimate or overlook the power that Jesus possesses. Jesus is pointing out a problem that Philip can't fix, and he's asking Philip how he's going to fix uh, the problem. Right, think about it for a second. This isn't like uh, you inviting an extra guest over uh, for dinner on Sunday night. 
Maybe you've done that before. You see someone at church and you're going, you should come over to the house after the service. We could have lunch together. Knowing full well, you don't know if you have enough food to actually feed them. And so you go home and you think to yourself, well, we'll just, we'll cut the chicken in two. We'll multiply the chicken. We'll take the pizza and we'll ask them to double cut it. We'll take our mashed potatoes and we'll fluff them up a little bit. So when they're passed around the table, it'll look like there is more food than there actually is. Maybe you think to yourself, I think we still have some leftovers from yesterday. We can heat it up, we'll put it on the table, and we'll hope there's enough for everyone. You've been there before, haven't you? Uh, This is not like one of those situations. Uh, There is a crowd, later we're told there are 5,000 men, just men. So most commentators will say there is somewhere between 10 and 12,000 people uh, that are there for Jesus' teaching. 5,000 men. So just close your eyes for a second. You're on a mountain. Jesus is there, his disciples, and, and you are one of 10,000, 11,000, 12,000, and your stomach starts to growl. And you think to yourself, I really want to listen to that man, but I'm hungry. Maybe that's not so far-fetched for you right now. Maybe you hear my voice and you're thinking, I hope he lands the plane. I'm hungry. I want lunch, and I want it now. Right now, Jesus looks at his disciple and says to him, uh, like, where are you going to buy bread so that these people may eat? But when you think about it, it's kind of a crazy question, isn't it? I mean, think about it. What do you mean, where am I going to buy bread so that these people are going to eat? Jesus, there are thousands of people. Right? I can't run to Panera Bread and grab a loaf. Like, that's not how it works. So I read the words of Philip, and I think to myself, man, I'm kind of a whole lot like him. Philip is is a realist. He's looking at the situation, and he's going, Lord, you can't fix this. Verse 7 says, Philip answered Jesus, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each a one to even get a little. Denaro was a, a piece of money. It was a day's wage. So, so Philip looks out at the crowd and he says, Lord, I, <laughs> we could have 200 days worth of resources and it wouldn't even be enough to put a dent in lunch. Like, like 200 days. Philip says, we don't have a denarii, we don't have the dinero, we don't have the money, uh, we don't have the means, we don't have the resources that we need, Lord Jesus, uh, to feed these people. What, What is Philip? Philip is a realist. He's a realist. I read this story and I think to myself, I mean, I probably wouldn't criticize Philip. I'm a lot like Philip. I mean, come on. Just let me look at the crowd. 
Nobody has anything to eat. They can't afford to feed the crowd. Why is Jesus asking me what I'm going to do for the people, where I'm going to get bread? You can't pull this off. One commentator uh, said this of the story, human ingenuity couldn't solve this problem. Because we live in an age of great technological advance, we sometimes act as if we're invincible. This passage is a great reminder that we will always be confronted with problems too big for us to solve. Death, disease, war, those are the big ones. Even when we shrink them down to a personal size, we realize how powerless we are. Who can stop himself from getting sick? Who can make sure he's never misunderstood or mistreated? Who can make sure everyone likes him all the time? We are powerless, just like Philip. Like Philip, we're quick to look for human solutions. A problem comes and our minds start going. We're going to fix it. And like Philip, we forget who's standing with us. Jesus asked Philip the question so Philip would learn that no problem is a match for Jesus' power. Don't you need that reminder this morning? I know I do. Another disciple, Andrew, brings Jesus a boy who has a small lunch with him. It seems like a great act of faith until it's undermined by his closing comments. Andrew brings the five loaves and the two fishes and says, but what are they for so many? He too is a realist. He's looking at the crowd. He's looking at one boy's little lunchable. And he's going, well, I mean, we have a little snack here, Lord. But it's not going to help out, not for this size crowd. Some people believe these loaves of bread were the size of a biscuit. Just, this is a small little like, personal biscuit. The fish were little, little tiny, maybe sardines. There's a snack that a little boy uh, brought to a talk. It's like a little kid in CP Kids with a small bag of pretzels or crackers or goldfish. Uh, Philip and Andrew, perhaps, are like you and me. They assess the situation and they respond as the realist they are. You say, Jesus, I could work for eight months out of the year and I still wouldn't have enough money to feed the crowd they, they would look at the little snack of a boy and say, well, this, I mean, this is nothing. This can't go very far. Let's be realistic, Jesus. I don't know about you, but oftentimes I, I live my life uh, with that sort of posture. And it's convenient to do so because it can almost come across as, as wise. You assess the situation and you put on your thinking cap and you go, well, clearly nothing can be done about this. I 
thought about that recently in the context of uh, us raising funds for a building. Uh, you may remember uh, that we purchased six and a half acres of land adjacent to this barn right over my right shoulder. You can see it when you drive down Ridge Road. Uh, early in the year, last year, we were given an estimate for the cost of the project. Uh, we were told, hey, give or take, $2.3, $2.5 million, not an insignificant amount of money. But I'm a realist. I thought to myself, I think, I think we could probably pull together a down payment, you know, $400,000 is what we needed. Last October, kind of shared the vision for that uh, with the church, and resources started to come in. As we got closer to our number, we wanted to uh, get some final numbers or relatively close numbers uh, to what it would cost. Same building, essentially, same project, uh, some eight, nine months later, and they crunched the numbers and they said, your 2.3 to 2.5, a million dollar project is now four million dollars. Not a math guy, but I thought to myself, a four million dollars is more than $2.3 million. Kind of whittled it down. You know, I didn't have a special room in the new place. Let's get rid of that. No sauna. Very, very basic. We got it down to 3.5. 3.5 and 2.5. It's still a million-dollar gap. And I'm a realist. And so I think to myself, well, <laughs> Lord, I mean, it's obvious. Like, well, what do you want me to do? It's a million dollars. It's amazing when I think how often in my life I have that mindset. I'm just a realist. I mean, you live enough life in a fallen and a broken world, and you get to the point where you can kind of figure how things are going to play out. Been there, done that. I know how this ends. I'm a realist. But God doesn't always work that way. He doesn't. There, there are times when, when God moves and acts and works in such a way that it leaves us dumbfounded. Where we sit back and we go, ah, uh, that wasn't supposed to happen. When we face a situation that seems impossible, we look for human solutions, as Philip did. And if we don't see any, then we despair as Andrew did, thinking, what good will it do? What difference will it make? There is a small boy with a small lunch, with small fish, and a handful of loaves of bread. The situation seems hopeless. It looks like everyone's going to go home hungry. And then Jesus rolls up his sleeves. Jesus said in verse 10, have the people sit down. Now, there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. 
Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told the disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. I want to share with you three reasons why Jesus doesn't call Uber Eats when he runs out of food. Reason number one is so that Jesus may display his power. This is no sleight of hand here. Jesus prayed, he thanked his father for what he was about to do, and he turned five loaves and two fishes into an all-you-can-eat buffet. There was more than enough to go around. There were leftovers. No one went home hungry that day. When Jesus supplies, it is never too little. He never runs out. Jesus loves to go above and beyond not only what we can ask, but even what we can think or imagine. Jesus is displaying his power. A Jesus has never run into a problem that he cannot solve. No wine at the wedding, no problem. No food in the wilderness, no problem. No life in the tomb, no problem. When you follow Jesus, you never reach a dead end. You never bring something before the Lord where he shrugs his shoulders and says, I don't know about that one. He is able. Jesus is all-powerful. And his miracles cause people to respond in awe. After all, the miracles were miraculous. Those events did not just happen, only they did. They did happen. And Jesus displayed his power over sickness. He displayed his power over disease. He displayed his power over creation. He displayed his power over death. He, he didn't perform miracles to be a show-off, but he does show off. He, he does flex over creation. Jesus demonstrates his power. Why doesn't Jesus call Uber Eats when he runs out of food so that Jesus may display his power? Reason number two, to confront darkness. The miracles of Jesus are an attack on the ruler of this world. They are a bright light that pierces the darkness of the world that we live in. Jesus is teaching his followers that his kingdom is at hand, that there will be a day when there will be no more death, mourning, crying, or pain. Jesus came to make the wrong world right. He came to make the crooked path straight. He came to show that one day there will be no more hunger, there will be no more sickness, there will be no more disability. It will be gone. Relationships will be righted and restored. The blind will see, 
the deaf will hear, the poor will no longer be powerless. Jesus' miracles were not simply random acts of kindness. They were not to cause people to sit back and think to to themselves, well, that was sweet. Jesus was overturning the power of death and disease. Jesus came in power to a world marred by sin and lands a blow to darkness. That is what Jesus is doing here. Matthew chapter 11, verses 1 through 5 read, When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word to his disciples and and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you see and what you hear. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers, uh, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. Right? So Jesus is penetrating the darkness. Jesus came into the world to confront darkness. Reason number three that Jesus did not call Uber Eats is to demonstrate his deity. Jesus here, by doing the miraculous, demonstrates who he is. Who can take a Lunchable and turn it into an all-you-can-eat buffet and feed it to thousands of people on uh, the mountainside? Uh, Jesus can. God can. Even the doubters knew that something was up. Even people that looked at Jesus and weren't sure about who he was or what he was about Um, struggled to find language uh, to explain what he was doing. People said things like, well, clearly he must be sent from God, or they followed him simply because they were impressed by his acts. They witnessed the works that he had been doing and were fascinated by them. They were fascinated by his feats. They didn't necessarily believe him. They still questioned him. Jesus knew this. But he still blew people away. He left them scratching their heads and and shrugging their shoulders. But these feats, these miracles that Jesus performed were no magic tricks to impress the crowd. The miracles were done to demonstrate his deity. Not only was Jesus sent from God, but he was, in fact, God. He was not only a prophet, he was the prophet. These signs point to Jesus as the Savior of of the world. Remember our main passage from the end of the Gospel of John reads, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these things are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is what Jesus is doing when he turns loaves and fishes into a buffet. He is demonstrating his deity. He is calling people uh, to himself. And so this morning, I want to speak uh, to two groups of people. I want to speak to the realist among us. You know who you are. You know who you are. Just so you know, it takes one to know one. I'm right there with you. Uh, You're someone who's got a good head on your shoulders. Uh, You know how the world works. 
You've been around the block more than once. You're well aware of the statistics. You're quick to acknowledge that this is not uh, your first rodeo. Uh, You've been there. You've done that. You have the t-shirt to show for it. You can remember when. You know the lay of the land. You've seen this play out a million times before. You don't live with your head in the sand. You're quick to point out that seven months' salary would hardly be enough for an appetizer of a crowd of ten to 12,000. And a couple of biscuits and sardines wouldn't fill the stomachs of a hungry crowd. Come on, let's be realistic. I want you, want you the realist among us, just to imagine for a moment um, that God is the God of the miraculous. That, that He is not limited by what makes sense uh, to you or to me. That, that there are times when God sees fit, for whatever reason, uh, to say to His kids, hey, watch this. He does that uh, with broken marriages. He does it with fractured relationships. Uh, He does it with our unexpected diagnosis. He does it with our finangled finances. Jesus does it all the time. And I wonder, I wonder what it would look like uh, for you and me uh, to navigate through life with just a posture of faith. Just a posture of faith. We could take off our realist hat just for a moment or two and pray for the impossible. I wonder if the God of the possible wouldn't be pleased. Uh, to those of us who are here this morning and you are, you are spiritually hungry, uh, I want to remind you that this is not a story about bread. It's not primarily a story about bread. It's not about multigrain. This is a story about the bread of life. This is a story about a Savior who satisfies us for all of eternity. And we, we are a hungry people. And we live life chasing after, chasing after and thirsting for what will satisfy us. Um, Jesus is the only one who will satisfy. And so I want to encourage you this morning uh, to come to him, the bread of life, and hunger no more. Find your deepest satisfaction and fulfillment in him. He will quench your thirst. He will satisfy your hunger. Come to Jesus. These things are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. May that life be yours today. Would you pray with me? Father God, we give you thanks uh, for your living and active word. We thank you for how you use it to form us and shape us and change us. God, I thank you that you are a God who performs miracles. Uh, You do the miraculous. There is no situation or circumstance 
that is beyond your ability or capability. There is nothing that happens to us in life where you shrug your shoulders and you think that is above my pay grade. God, I thank you that you are strong and that you are mighty. In the quietness of uh, this moment, church family, I want to encourage you to just spend a few moments with the Lord. If you are here this morning and you would readily describe yourself as maybe a little cynical or if you want to put a positive spin on it, simply say that you're a realist, maybe God is calling you uh, just by faith to trust and believe in Him this morning. I don't know the circumstance or the situation, but I just wonder if you might bring that before the Lord in the quietness of this moment. If you are here this morning and you are hungry, then you, you, you have a hunger that cannot be satisfied. You are thirsty and your stomach is growling for something more, not food, but someone who will satisfy. My hope and prayer is that you would come to Jesus in the quietness of this moment and by faith, uh, trust in him, his finished work, his life, his death, his resurrection, and that God, by the power of his spirit, might fill you.